This is Essential. 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 This is Essential Audio. Welcome to this special episode of The Money Pot. The invasion into Ukraine has become front and center for the global financial world. As a response, there have been sanctions on Russian financial institutions, including from SWIFT, and the freezing of Russian central bank assets. These sanctions or threats of sanctions have already had severe repercussions for both Russia and the global economy. Repercussions that have yet to be fully felt. We at Money 2020 wanted to provide clarity and information that our listeners will find useful to understand both the details of the sanctions, what they seem to imply, and what other financial tools are factors in the complete story, including alternate payment systems within Russia and how crypto is being used. First, we wanted to clarify where the sanctions actually apply and what those will mean now and possibly long term. I want to welcome my colleague and Money 2020 financial journalist, Mickey Tesfaye, to help. Welcome, Mickey. So first, let's go ahead and talk about SWIFT. Can you help define it and make sure we are all on the same page? Hi, Sanj. Sure. Um, so SWIFT, which stands for Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunication, is a peer-to-peer messaging service that is used to facilitate most commercial cross-border payments between firms and banks in different countries. At the moment, there are more than 11,000 banks that use the SWIFT network, including some 300 Russian banks. So what sanctions have been imposed so far and when do they go into effect? So following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we've seen Western nations impose what has been described as an unprecedented and wide-ranging set of sanctions on Russia. The US started introducing new sanctions and and these are beyond what it had imposed following the um, annexation of Crimea by Russia in 2014. And among the first set of sanctions imposed by the administration on Russia's financial system were restrictions against two large banks, VEB and PSB, in a move that effectively froze their assets. So that was how it started. But as the fighting escalated, how have sanctions escalated? Yes, so on the 24th of February, as Russia's invasion intensified, the Biden administration tightened these sanctions, extending restrictions to, in effect, all of Russia's major banks, representing around 80% of total banking assets in the country. The administration also placed restrictions on Sberbank, which is Russia's largest lender, and it holds about a third of all bank assets in the country. But despite those restrictions, they are not general blocking sanctions on Sberbank. We then saw a further escalation of sanctions as the US, EU and their allies outlined plans to disconnect seven Russian banks from the SWIFT network. But perhaps the most important set of sanctions came on the 26th of February, when the US and its allies outlined plans to sanction the Russian central bank. The sanction against the central bank meant that the Russian government lost access to more than 380 billion of the total $643 billion in assets it held in Western banks. Wow. How impactful is banning Russian banks from SWIFT? 
So while disconnecting Russia's financial system from SWIFT will make cross-border payments inefficient, there are still workarounds. So, for example, Russian banks can still use SWIFT alternatives like China's CIPS, which stands for Cross-Border Interbank Payment System, or even other messaging systems like secured emails. And although such alternatives are cumbersome and inefficient, they can nonetheless be used to blunt the impact of the SWIFT sanctions. So which sanctions are likely to be more effective then? I think the most devastating sanctions so far has been the one that's kind of flown a bit under the radar, the sanctions on the Russian central bank. The impact of freezing a large chunk of Russia's foreign reserves has already had a devastating effect on the value of the ruble. In fact, as we saw immediately after the announcement, the ruble dropped almost 30% in a day. Um, Normally, when a currency depreciates, the country's central bank would use its foreign reserves to buy back their local currency and pay for it with foreign currency like the US dollar, and thereby stabilizing its local currency market. But the West's sanctions have significantly reduced Russia's ability to do this. And then when you combine these restrictions on Russia's ability to defend its currency with things like removing its banks from the SWIFT network, then you really start crippling the country's economy. Well, that's quite a story. And thank you, Mickey, for joining us. So we know that the Russian economy is in serious trouble. This isn't the first time that swift sanctions have been threatened. There has been innovation inside Russia to possibly alleviate their dependence on swift. And this is something that other countries are in the process of developing. To help me explain some of these developments, I'm going to ask Rachel Morrissey, the executive producer of the podcast, to join me. So what is MIR or MIR and NSPK? Okay, so... As you said, uh, they've been developing other messaging and payment networks in case there's problems with SWIFT. So MIR, or the NSPK, is an internal payment system. It was developed and owned by the Russian Central Bank, along with the, um, it's sort of a SWIFT equivalent for their domestic side, called the System for Transfer of Financial Messages, or SPFS. Why were MIR and SPFS developed? So SWIFT sanctions have only been used a few times. In 2012, they imposed SWIFT sanctions on Iran uh, to deter it from its nuclear program. It had immediate decimating effects on their economy and their ability to trade. In 2014, following the annexation of Crimea, there were economic sanctions imposed on certain institutions and individuals in Russia. So in response, Russia was like, we don't want to be constantly under this threat. They established the NSPK, which, like I said, the National Systemic Payments Card, or Fast Payments Card, as it's known inside. And the card is actually an offshoot of a larger project, which was the UEC, or the Universal Electronic Card. And that was a project the Russian government was developing in um, association with Spurbank as a universal identity and payments card. Mm, Very interesting. And How popular are MIR and SPFS? It's 
grown really rapidly. Um, there are over 100 million mirror cards in circulation. They're accepted at more than 85% point of sale terminals in Russia, in Armenia, in the breakaway Georgian regions. They're also um, accepted in certain neighboring countries when they're co-branded with international cards by JCB, Maestro, and Union Pay. They're issued by over 158 banks, um, and the SPFS has handled about 20% of all the domestic transfers last year. And, and what other alternatives to SWIFT are there from other nations? Well, as uh, Mickey said, China has the CIPS, the Cross-Border Interbank Payment System, uh, and it was just announced today that Spurbank and Tinkoff would both be joining SIPs. Um, as a, a way to get around the SWIFT sanctions. Um, they have a long way to go still to compete with SWIFT, but, but having those banks join will probably accelerate that. India has a domestic one that's called the SWIFT India Domestic Services. It was built actually in conjunction with SWIFT, and it has the SFMS, the Structured Financial Messaging System, that was built specifically for India's domestic banking. What we've seen is a lot of the BRIC nations have been the most active in trying to build SWIFT alternatives. Thank you very much, Rachel. That was very helpful. When we talk about alternative payment rails and communications, we have to discuss crypto. Right now, cryptocurrencies are a complicated but intricate part of the movement of money. Those imposing sanctions have requested that the crypto exchanges honor the sanctions, and the response is nuanced. To help me unpack the different issues that crypto brings into the mix, I want to welcome our global head of research, Nick Holland. So, how are crypto exchanges dealing with the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Yes, thanks. So it's been interesting. Um, so, the major crypto exchanges have been urged to ban their services in Russia obviously to prevent sanctioned entities from parking their assets using cryptocurrencies. Um, two of the world's biggest crypto exchanges, Coinbase and Binance, actually rejected calls on Friday for a blanket ban on all Russian users to stop their platforms from being used as a way around the Western sanctions. Um, Coinbase's CEO, Brian Armstrong, said in a series of tweets, we believe everyone deserves access to basic financial services unless the law says otherwise. Um, they did, however, say that they would enforce such a blanket ban if the US government decided to impose one. Uh, similarly, Binance, a spokesperson there, said um, we are not going to unilaterally freeze millions of innocent users' accounts. Um, but like I say, both crypto exchanges have said they'll comply with government sanctions where needed. That, that, that certainly is a, a very complicated uh, series of questions there. And and. and isn't there a serious dilemma here for the exchanges that have built their reputations on enabling transfers of borderless government agnostic currencies? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be a bit of a balancing act for these exchanges. I mean, on the one hand, they don't really want to deviate from the sort of old ethos of cryptocurrencies being outside of the control of governments and borders. But on the other hand, they probably don't want to be on the wrong side of history by undermining punitive sanctions designed to counter what's been an aggressive invasion of a nation state. Um, I was actually listening to NPR the other week with, um, they had Brian Armstrong on the How I Built This uh, show, and he attributed the success of Coinbase in part with the decision early on to work closely with regulators for AML and KYC purposes. 
Um, so clearly, I mean, they, they built these bridges early on, worked well with regulators, but these can be built or burned, clearly. And the, the exchanges probably need to be extremely careful not to alienate themselves from the on-ramps and off-ramps to fiat currencies that really are their lifeblood. Well, th- that certainly is quite a nuance there. Um, could this precipitate crypto being the shadow currency for Russia? Um, I doubt it, to be honest. I think that really, I mean, we've seen... Actually, I mean, crypto adoption isn't that low in these countries. Um, I, I spoke with a representative from Chainalysis over the weekend. Um, both uh, Ukraine and Russia are actually kind of high in their global crypto adoption index, uh, which ranks countries by grassroots adoption. Um, conversations I've had, however, I mean, again, it's the same as anywhere else. It's, I mean, crypto is fantastic for you know exchanging uh, cryptocurrencies, but when it comes to the you know where the rubber meets the road in the physical world. Um, you just can't really pay in most shops with them. So, um, you know, as, for it being a shadow currency, I, I really very much doubt that. Um, not certainly anytime soon. Uh, that, that makes sense. And so n- n- maybe less likely on the low volumes, you know, high, tr- high frequency. But how, how about is the idea of oligarchs bypassing sanctions via crypto realistic? I mean, clearly the developments in cryptocurrency tracing have come on leaps and bounds in recent years. Um, we've got companies like Chainalysis, who I mentioned, and CypherTrace doing an incredible job of de-anonymizing <clears throat> what was supposedly anonymous currencies, uh, as the uh, recently aspiring rapper Razzle Khan uh, discovered. Um, we've, we've also, I mean, we discovered that, I mean, also, again, everything is recorded on the blockchain. It's therefore immutable and transparent. And then it's, you know, clearly the the uh, investigative authorities such as the FBI, IRS, Interpol and others have really stepped up their crypto tracing capabilities. So uh, my hunch would be that hiding your funds in crypto is going to be about as simple as hiding a super yacht in the French Riviera. Mm. Yeah, that's a great analogy, Nick. Um, and any other final thoughts that you want to leave us with? I mean, certainly, I think, you know, as I said, it's it's going to be just, like I said, a very tricky balancing act for these exchanges um, in that this is probably the first time that they've had to deal with uh, policy decisions in a global conflict that uh, could have very significant repercussions uh, if they don't do the right thing. And, and I think that's a great way to end it. Um, it is a tricky balance, um, and it's brought forth a lot of uh, things that might have been in, in the background into the forefront. And I wanted to thank my guests uh, today, Mickey Tesfaye, Rachel Morrissey, and Nick Holland for their insights. And uh, wish all of you listeners uh, safety and, um, and, and strength as we get through this. Thank you. This is Essential. 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 This is Essential Audio.